Welcome to this episode of Let's Chat. I'm your host, Chris Revel, coming at you from the Cat Cave in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, today's guest was Nevin Martell, the author of uh, many of things, actually. Um, Nevin is super fucking cool guy. Go to his website, nevinmartell.com. He's a food writer, pop culture archaeologist, photographer. Uh, he, you know, in the episode we talk about it, but he, you know, at one point in life, Tyfe was... One point in life was working for development, tele- development television programs, and then on the side was writing a, the book that I ended up reading, looking for Calvin and Hobbes, the unconventional story of Bill Watterson and his revolutionary comic strip. My brother Aaron bought it for me. Uh, the day I recorded this with Nevin and the day I'm doing this intro is actually on my brother's birthday. It'll be out, not on his birthday, but Aaron, if you are listening, happy birthday. So the reason I ended up getting this book, like I talk about in the podcast, is uh, my brother Aaron and his wife Heather, a year ago, before Christmas, my sister-in-law Heather was pregnant with my now nephew Ben. His birthday is actually in a few days, so I get to see him. And uh, so when Aaron was having the baby, every year Aaron and I always buy each other really cool Christmas presents. And uh, we just kind of rediscovered our love, you know, with Ben Con his way, of uh, Calvin and Hobbes. So we'd agreed that we'd get each other cool presents. I bought him some fan art of uh, Calvin and Hobbes from Etsy. And to my surprise, he bought me this book called Looking for Calvin and Hobbes. And it's I, I'm not a big reader, but uh, I read the entire thing and I just, I loved it. I couldn't put it down. I just flew through it. And if Victoria, my wife is listening, she'll tell you it took me about a year to read. So for me, that's flying through it. But no, I, I read the whole thing, and I absolutely loved it. And then there's a great documentary on Netflix that we talk about called Looking for uh, Dear Mr. Watterson. I saw it when, it came, when I saw it on Netflix. Loved it. And then uh, last week on Saturday, I'm sitting at home watching TV, going through the, uh, watching Netflix, obviously. And I see it again. So I'm like, I really like that documentary. I'm going to watch it again. And then I saw Nevin Partell pop up again in the book, and... When I had read the book, I, the pod, I wasn't doing the podcast yet. Or maybe I was. I don't remember. But I didn't have the Twitter, so I was like, I wonder if he's on Twitter. So literally, I just found him on Twitter and said, uh, my brother Aaron gave me this book for Christmas last year. It was one of the best gifts I've ever got. And then he responded. He's like, thank you so much. Maybe we could chat about it. And bam, we're emailing, and we set it up. And within the week, he's on my podcast this episode's a little short. It's about a half hour. Um, he has kids, so we just had some time frame, which uh, I think is good. I think uh, a half hour is actually really nice. We talked about all the stuff you want to hear about. So we talk a lot about the book, uh, Looking for Calvin and Hobbes. But man, this guy has written a ton of books, and he's a food writer, and all-around cool dude. Just so nice. Uh, really, please go to his website, uh, nevinmartel.com. I mean, he's written... Uh, a book about Dave Matthews Band. He wrote a book about Beck. He wrote a book called Standing Small, a celebration of 30 years of the Lego Mini... Standing Small, a celebration of 30 years of the Lego minifigure. Then he also wrote Freak Show Without a Tent, Swimming with Piranhas, Getting Stoned in Fiji, and Other Family Vacations. And uh, what his work is now is about more food writing, The Founding Farmer's Cookbook, 100 Recipes for True Food and Drink, Talk about uh, we talk about DC living down there. Honestly, Nevin was just just so nice. It, he he really was just really cool. 
Uh, it turns out his sister lived in Providence at one point, and we he came, went to the Seven Stars Bakery, which is uh, right by where I live, the one that he happened to be going to. Uh, find him on Twitter, at Nevin Nartel. He's Nevin Martel. He's not kidding. He's very active on social media. If you have a podcast, I bet he'd come on it. Uh, buy some, please, if you are a Calvin and Hobbes fan, you have to read this book. It gave me such respect for Bill Watterson. Uh, it's the closest thing that will ever will be to a biography of Bill Watterson. If you're unaware of him, of his uh, secretiveness, you know, he's kind of like the John Hughes of illustrations. Like He made the comic strip very, very famously, refused to license any of it, owns all the rights, and then just walked away after about 10 years of it, and that was it. The only thing of Calvin Hobbes that legally exists of the his, it's the comic strip and then the books. And anything else is bootleg. I do recommend going on Etsy and typing in Calvin and Hobbes so you can find some really great stuff. Do me a huge favor. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes, on iTunes. Write me an iTunes review. I would greatly appreciate it. Follow us on Twitter at Let's Chat Podcast. We have a Facebook, facebook.com slash Let's Us Chat. And um, email us. Let us know what you think of the show at uh, Let's Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Really, uh, another huge thanks to Nevin. Um, I don't think he understood how a big deal this was for me. Like, to read someone's book is fucking cool. And then to, like, get to talk to them about their work. Like, this podcast has been such a great experience. Um, I've been having so much fun with it, and I'm going to do this podcast as long as it keeps bringing me as much joy and fulfillment as it has. Ne- Nevin, if you're listening, thank you again. It was just so much fun. And uh, let's get to it. The hard, the hard, you never thought that this cop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight, cause I rhyme tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace to Raw G, Brucey B, Kid Debris. Funk, Master Flex, Love, Bump, Star, Ski. For legal recording, when I downloaded the MP3 Skype recorder, it was like had this long thing about how it's illegal to record people without them knowing. So I'm not breaking the law. So glad that we have started off on the right foot. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you feel the same. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. So uh, where are you? Uh, I, I'm in uh, Rhode Island, actually. Oh, what part? Uh, Pro- I live in Providence. Uh, so the, the state no one's ever heard of. No, my sister lived in uh, Providence for a number of years, and I love Seven Stars Bakery up your way. Oh, I live walking distance and go there all too often. Ah, oh, dude, those sticky buns and those morning buns that yes! they make. Oh, my God. Oh, amazing. What, um, my in-laws are from Jersey, and they come up here, and I swear to God, we, we're not even kidding that they come up for Seven Stars because <laughs> they drive straight there. They don't come to our house. Oh, wow. Yeah, every time my sister's gone home, I've insisted that she brings some to me, mm-hmm. even though she lives six hours away from me, and just put them in her, you know, freezer until the next time I see her. So. Oh wow! Did she go to school up here? Or. Uh yeah, she was uh she was working for RISD for a while. Yeah, well, she still works for RISD. Oh wow! Uh, though, but remotely. So um yeah she uh she was up there for work. And uh, but then she's now in uh, graduate school out in Ithaca, New York. So, but oh, she yeah. has like a, a telecommuting job. She does uh, develop, uh, yeah, like development work for RISD. Oh, well, that, so. that I think that's kind of perfect because uh, well, I, I uh, obviously I knew your book, Looking for Calvin and Hobbes, 
and then I uh, went to your website, and I didn't know that you were a food writer, and Providence is the food capital of the country, so that must work out well for when you come up here. <laughs> Wait, the food capital of the country? That's a bold statement, Chris. I didn't make it. it, it it's uh, Travel and Leisure called it, like, the restaurant city uh, of, of, like, last year. It, Providence, I, I'm not from Rhode Island, so I moved here about oh. four years ago. And from my understanding, this place was, like, just Detroit. And then sure. in the last, like, five, ten years, it's, just, it's in its renaissance right now. Well, I haven't been in years. I, I think the last time I went up was, like, maybe four years ago. So I need to clearly go back up and do some eating. Yeah. Oh my God. It's, it's great. There's like, I think there's three seven stars bakeries. Uh, I'm not sure which one you went to. Uh, there's two in Providence and one in a different town. I have no idea where it is, but there's one on the East side and where I live on the West side is like the, if this was, if we were Brooklyn, if we were in New York, we'd be in like the, I live in like the Brooklyn, I guess you'd call it. I think that's the one I've been to. It's like kind of kitty corner from like a funky gift shop. Yep. Like a real, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's my neighborhood. Oh dude, you have a great neighborhood. Yeah. And it's so cheap. Well, Rub it in. Compared to other places, it's very cheap. But, of course, unemployment's very high here. Right. That is, yeah, that's been part of my sister's issue about moving back, even for the job. You're like, oh, but other than that. Uh, but you're, you're D.C.? Yeah, talk about high. Uh, we have the highest, uh, like, housing rates in the country, some of the highest housing rates in the country. So, yeah, it's uh, it's painful here. But you live in the city of D.C.? I'm, we're technically in the city, but we're on the very edge of it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of feels almost suburban. Oh, that's nice, because my only yeah. knowledge of that would be, like, Veep and West Wing and, like, House of Cards, so I don't know the residential aspects of D.C. Yeah, uh, I don't think that there's ever been a character from Veep or House of Cards or West Wing ever in my area of town on the show. That's fair. <laughs> it's, just, it's not cool enough, and there are no prostitutes here. That's probably a good thing. Yeah, no, it's great. That's why it, it works well for a family situation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's so great. Um, let, well, I, if you don't mind talking about your book, because uh, my brother got that for me last year. So I'm 30, and uh, so last year my brother, my nephew is about to turn one in like two days. So mm -hmm. my nephew was in the womb. So before my brother's wife was going to do all the real work, obviously, um, we just both kind of re-found Calvin and Hobbes. So we're like, all right, for Christmas – Let's get each other – we always get each other, like, really cool presents. Like, we've just done that our whole lives. So I ended up going on Etsy and finding him this, like, Calvin and Hobbes piece of fan art that I loved. And then in return, he gave me your book, uh, Looking for Calvin and Hobbes. Wow. I have no idea how he found it. Um, I'm sure Google would be the obvious answer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't read a ton. I read, like, maybe one to two books a year. And that's one of the very few books I've ever read in my life that I just could not put down and just, like, blew through it. That's a high compliment. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I love uh, Chuck Klosterman. I let, read him a lot. And then um, – but your book, which just, it just had such a personal feel. Like, it's weird. I'd never heard your voice. But, like, reading that – I love biographies, oral histories, and those types of things. But, I mean, Bill Watterson, after reading your book, I, you can't do that because that guy is not going to let anyone do it for him. No, no, he is not. <laughs> but you did a yeah, damn good I, job. <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, he was really um, in, in Enigma, but it was great that I, you know, I ended up talking to more than 100 people, you know, who knew him professionally or personally for the book or were just huge fans of him and, or were a part of the cartooning community. And so they kind of spoke for him. That was supplemented by the few interviews he had given and his work, obviously. Oh, yeah. So it was kind of interesting trying to cut a, you know, create a, a voice for him out, out of all these other voices. But um Everyone had so many interesting things to say about him that I think it worked well. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I love the book because it's like your journey of learning about this person. Like, it almost like felt like read like almost if you were like watching a documentary in a weird. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because like you were almost the character, and then we went along with you for this journey. And the, some of the people you got for that book were just incredible. Like, huge names, and then some of the people were just like people who happened to grow up with them. Like, blew yeah. my mind. Um, so it, uh, was, it was an interesting like you know it was a, like you say it's like. It went from people like that are super fans like Patton Oswalt or Brad Bird, who are yep. obviously both monsters in their respective fields, to yeah, like the guy that grew up next door to him and was his childhood friend and was ultimately the uh, inspiration for the doctor yeah. in my book strip, or you know, talking to his mom or talking to some of the people in Chagrin Falls that kind of knew him and his family. It was really kind of it was a it was a huge spectrum of people. But it, the amazing thing was is that everyone had such profound respect for him and, you know, huge admiration, even the people that didn't personally know him but were just kind of like yeah. taking, him as a, taking him in as an artist. Um, yeah, the, the one thing that was universal was the respect and a, a lot of love, obviously. Do you, I, you know what I, I found? I loved your book because uh, I, I, I was – the way I think about it, like, I love his work. I knew nothing about him as a person, but I feel like if I worked with him in an office, I would not like him as a human being. Like, you know, I think that obviously he's a really, really principled guy, and he was, which I respect, which I respect as well. And obviously, with that came a, a lot of stubbornness. And I think that if you found yourself on the other side of the equation, it would probably be hard to deal with him. So I have really the ultimate respect for his editor and his syndicate that they ultimately saw that he was kind of intractable. That what he wanted was the way it was going to be, and if. They wanted it any other way than he was going to walk away from what everyone realized was truly one of the great comic strips of all time. And unfortunately, just given the way the newspapers went, it was one of the last great comic strips ever. You know, yeah, I, I think know. that, you know, it's probably one of the last comic strips where everybody from, you know, someone my age to someone younger, someone older, would all know who Calvin and Hobbes were. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not really an analog these days. I think. Stefan Pastis with Pros Before Swine has done a great job of yeah. kind of really getting out into culture on a wider scale. But still, I mean, there are a lot of people who say Pros Before Swine and they're like, they have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I, uh, I was one of those people. <laughs> yeah. Quite but, honestly. I mean, yeah. And I mean, to be honest, I didn't really discover Pros Before Swine until I was writing the book and I was thinking to myself, okay, who are really the hottest cartoonists these days? Because, you know, there are so few cartoons in our papers, um, and you know, they're they're so fragmented, and so many of them are just the old comic strips with new writers or new illustrators. So I was really happy to have discovered Stephen Pastis and also Richard Thompson, who did, um, you know, um, the um, he did well. Poor Richard's Almanac, and then um, he's since retired, unfortunately. But um, you know, those were the two artists I was really happy to. Uh, you know, kind of discovered. And yeah. speaking of your note about a documentary, you may or may not know this, but there is a documentary about Bill Watterson called um, Dear Mr. Watterson. Oh, that I, uh, I was going to mention that I saw you in that, and that's where I <laughs> thought to find you. And so I read the book a year ago, and then I watched the documentary, and then I watched it again on Saturday, and I just oh. had joined Twitter for the show. I made the Twitter for the podcast. So I was like, I wonder if Nevin, I, I remember I, you came up. I was like, I wonder if he has Twitter. And then that's how basically this whole thing happened. I love Twitter. Yeah, well, that's a great documentary too. Yeah, I no, I really think loved Joe it. Did a really great job, and it was weird because we filmed that footage 
when my book came out years and years ago. I mean, like it was like four years ago, I think, almost five now. And um, he had, came out to Chagrin Falls at the same time that I was doing my book release party at uh, Fireside Books, and you know, I was doing a, a speaking engagement at the library, and he and I sat down and chatted a couple of times, and you know, it was years before um, I even saw a preview uh, with myself in it. And the whole time, you know, every once in a while I'd get an email from him or I'd shoot him an email and I'd be like, hey, how's it going? Or, or I'd see that they did like a second round of uh, Kickstarter funding or something. Yeah. And he kept saying like, oh, no, 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 it's going really well. It's going great. And um, then finally the movie poster came out for it. And I noticed that my name was in the credits. And the credits are determined in movie posters by the amount of screen time you have. And so I was like, wow, you know, like. Uh, I'm clearly, you know, I'm in this movie a fair amount, and um, he did a great job of, of really bringing the story to life, and, you know, like my book, his journey was also a very personal one, and, and he played a role as a character in his story himself, and, uh, yeah, no, I couldn't have been happier, because the movie came out, and there was suddenly all this additional interest in my book that, you know, as an author, you never expect. I mean, certainly, when I sat down to talk with him in Chagrin Falls, I was like, Oh, this you know this will be nice. This will yeah. this will be fun. And you know, to make a um, part of the deal was he made a, a book document, a book trailer for my uh, for the book. And um, and I was like, well, you know, even if the movie never gets made, I have this great book trailer that Joel got for me. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, then you know, years later, I'm like, it, you know, I went to like a premiere that they did here in DC, and you oh, know, man. random people in California called, like, it texted me at like 11 at night and been like, dude. I'm on my couch stoned watching uh, Netflix and like I just watched this movie and then suddenly you're on my television. <laughs> and then because it's Netflix, so like you, no one has to seek it out. It's just bam, no. everyone's got Netflix. Yeah, no. they, they did a great job with the distribution. So. Oh my God. And the qual I, I really, I, that, that movie was just, I love documentaries. But I, I mean, I saw that after I read the book and then like I was like, so I'm not the only one going through this Calvin and Hobbes resurgence love. Like I feel like. It's about oh. time for that for the culture to have that. And um, uh, do you know who the actor uh, Ben Schwartz is? John Ralphio from Parks and Rec. He's a yeah. huge Calvin and Hobbes fan. I've heard him talking about it extensively oh. on podcasts. And I was like, yes, because we're probably about he's probably my age, maybe a little bit older, or younger. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I was like, yes, all right, come on, guys, we got to get this going, get this movement. Yeah, um, well, I think it's uh, particularly big now because people that you know, came of age with Calvin and Hobbes are now having children themselves. And yeah. They're thinking back to the things that meant the most to them as children or maybe that still resonate the most as adults. And Calvin and Hobbes is one of those things that really works on two levels. Like you read it as a kid and you get it and you read it as an adult and you suddenly think to yourself, God, there's so much more going on here that yeah. I might not have realized as a kid or you kind of subconsciously latched onto because you knew that there was so much more depth to it than anything else that was happening on the comics page for the most part. And so yeah. now all these parents are saying, you know, oh, gosh, I, this is what I want to give my kid. Like, this is this is like childhood incarnate, and they need to have it. And, you know, I wonder if that will happen, like, every, like, 30 years or so, there will be a huge resurgence of Calvin and Hobbes because it will be people getting to the point in their lives when they have children and they want to pass it on. Oh, I already have plans of buying him the complete collection, my nephew, and then when I have kids, like, it's already planned. Have you done the same for your children? Yeah, I have a two-year-old boy, and uh, for years, I've had a complete Calvin and Hobbes wrapped in my closet waiting for him. Just wait. Oh, that's so sweet. And, and so, Calvin and Hobbes also holds up, though, compared to a lot of things from you. Like, 
I watched the old yeah. Garfield cartoon, and it's just, eh. Sad. It's just not funny. I mean, no. you know, plus Garfield got really tired really quickly. Like, he had some very familiar tropes that he worked with. Like, oh, Garfield always gets hungry. Like, oh, it's Garfield's like. Yeah, I mean, there were just, you know, there was a very limited palette to what Garfield did. Um, whereas Calvin and Hobbes, you know, like, since he only ended up doing 10 years of cartoons, and that included some sabbaticals, so only really, like, eight years of cartoons. Like, yeah. he didn't, there wasn't any real repetition, you know? Like, there were things that he did kind of again and again, like Calvin Ball or things like or time yeah. travel or something, but they were always approached in a really different way. Um, you never got the sense that he was, like, going back to Calvin Ball because he didn't have anything. He just mm. thought of, like, a really unique spin put on the situation. And I think the, you know, it's just interesting because... Too, because you know, Garfield relies so much on kind of gimmick jokes, and so and like there's some there's a fair amount of pop culture references in Garfield, though not as much as in other comic strips. Yeah. Whereas Calvin and Hobbes, like for the first year or so, like he did make some pop culture references, but after that, you know, there are no references to Calvin and Hobbes. So you could read it 50 years from now, 100 oh, years yeah. from now. Obviously, TVs are going to look different, cars are going to look different, phones are going to look different. But there will always be a phone, a television, and a car, so the jokes will always make sense. All the references will still yeah. be there. Whereas you read, like, for example, if you read Bloom County now, I mean, it makes no sense. Like, there are so many offhand references to things happening in popular culture, politics, that, like, even at the time, Bloom County was like a thinking man's comic strip. You really had to know what was going on yeah. in the world to know what was going on in the comic strip. Now, you know, 20, 30 years later, it makes no sense at all because you have no frame of reference. You have no context for the comic. Whereas Calvin and Hobbes, it just exists in the joy of childhood, which you can always understand. Oh yeah. I completely, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah. That, that's so funny to think. Cause I never think that pop culture would date things until I've gotten older. And they're like, Oh, cause even like, like classic Simpsons episodes still hold up. And then I can't, if there's like another cartoon of that era and they're like, you know, even sometimes we watch the Simpsons and like, they make like presidential references or like TV shows, and sometimes like especially The Simpsons do throwback jokes to like so that comes out like eighty or nineties, and they're making a show a joke about a show in the seventies, and you're like, what? I mean, I knew enough about it, but then you're like, what? But yeah, Calvin never did that. And then the uh, which I love that you talk about in the book, like the illustration. Like I mean, nothing looks like Calvin and Hobbes. Like nothing. It's just so beautiful. Like, you know, I think everyone's got the same story. You're at, like, a crappy chain bookstore, and then you see a Calvin and Hobbes book on Clarence one day for, like, seven bucks, and you buy it. And then every couple of years, I'll pick it up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is amazing. So true. Yeah, I, you know, I had almost all the books. I had to pick up a couple of them that I either lost along the way or just didn't get along at the time that they came out. But, yeah, I had all of those books, and they were pretty consistently the gift that my mother would always get me yep. for my birthday Christmas, you know, whatever the new one was, that's what was under the tree or, you know, on the table for my birthday. And, uh, but I have to say like, even going back and like finding the couple that I didn't have, even having owned the complete Calvin Hobbs, it's, it's still awesome flipping through them. They're one of the, they're something that you can always return to. Oh man. Uh, so how, how did the book come out? Like, was this a project you wanted to do or did you like, and you're begging down publishers, or you uh, was it approached to you? No. So I had written a couple of books um, in the ni in the '90s into the early 2000s, uh, two music biographies, and the first one did really well. 
it was on the Dave Matthews Band, and mm -hmm. the second one did not do great. It was on Beck. And um, I, after the Beck book, I was, like, really burnt out and, like, kind of disillusioned with the whole idea of writing. Um, but after, like, a few years off, I started kind of kicking around ideas for books. And I had a job at the time. I was working in development in, in a television production company, uh, coming up with show ideas. And, uh, you know, I was trying to think to myself, you know, all right, I have this job. So anything I write, I'm going to have to be really passionate about because it's going to be something I'm going to be doing on the weekends, at night, in the mornings, in my spare time. Yeah. And so I just started thinking about the things that I really loved in my life. And Calvin and Hobbes came to mind. And, you know, it was one of those like, oh, I wonder what he's up to kind of moments. And uh, because we all read that letter in the paper when the last one ran, like, you know, oh, I've got projects cooking and you know basically like this isn't the end of me you, you know you haven't heard the end of me mm, and so <laughs> I went online and I realized that actually that was the last we'd heard of him and you know there had been like one article uh in a Cleveland paper like time trying to track him down uh but unsuccessfully and I thought to myself like wow like you know there's really a paucity of information on this guy and you know he's really one of the greatest cartoonists of all time and if I love him so much I'm sure, you know, other people would be just fanatically, you know, obsessed with him as well. And it was like one of those things that like so many, all, so many of my friends in high school and college, like Calvin and Hobbes was a touchstone. And so uh, I, I told my agent about the idea and he was like, well, you know, he's like, I don't like the idea of you uh, showing up on Bill Watterson's doorstep and like, you know, chasing him down. And I was like, well, you know, that's not really the idea because I respect his privacy and I know that any reader of the book would not want that kind of a book either. No, absolutely. And so, uh, so I decided to kind of like explore some options on my own. And I was talking to a publisher about an unrelated project. And I said, hey, you know, I have this idea for a book. Uh, let me send it over. And like within an hour, he was like, can you send me a chapter breakdown of how you see this book rolling out? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've been working on it. which of course, <laughs> And I'll have it to you tomorrow. And um, like within a week, I'd signed a contract uh, with this very small press called Continuum, and um, which is now Bloomsbury. And uh, yeah, I had a year and a half to write the book, and I ended up switching jobs, still being in television development. But it was something that, you know, I was doing phone calls on my lunch breaks. I was doing phone calls on the weekends. I was Jeez. writing whenever I could. And, um, you know, I had to like fake a funeral to like get out to Chagrin Falls because yeah. my boss wouldn't give me the time off. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it uh, it was really a labor of love. And then, you know, I handed it in and uh, had like that five or no, it was like six or seven month period where your book's in and, you know, no one else has read it yet and you're just kind of waiting. And then it came out and I was really happily surprised with, you know, people's reaction to it. it, it uh, yeah, it, it was a really uh, it was a turning point in my career as a writer. For sure. Are you are you consider yourself like a career writer now? Or are you still in TV development? No, I, I had to flee television development. Uh, Bill Watterson told this funny story to an interview at one point that uh, it, there was a time in his life when he had to uh, he did tele he did uh, newspaper ads. And yep. Newspaper oh yeah, ads. I remember that. And uh, he was so depressed with his job and he hated it so much and he so much wanted to be a cartoonist that like on his breaks he would uh, go to the local pardon me he would go to the local cemetery. And just walk around and, um, you know, try to take his mind off how much he hated his job. And there was a cemetery, like, just down the block from the office that I worked at. And I found myself going down there and taking walks 
uh, whenever I could, and I was like, God, I really need to leave this job. You know, if I'm uh, if I want to spend time with the dead rather than the living, you yeah. know, this is not good. And so, uh, no, in the middle of the Great Recession, uh, I have a great passion for food, and um, I saw kind of a, a, a kind of a surge in food writing, and uh, it was something I'd written about a little bit before and wanted to concentrate on. So. I quit the job uh, doing television development and started doing full-time food writing. And since then, I've published uh, uh, three more books, four more books. God, wow. yeah, four more books. So I did the I did Looking for Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I did a, an encyclopedia for Lego. Uh, yeah, that I just saw that today. I'm like that that I I actually I, I, my brother's birthday is actually today, and I have to go see him on Saturday. So I was trying to find him like something to get, and that's like we like that stuff. I was like, oh my god, we fucking love Legos. So I'm probably gonna go buy that tomorrow. So <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard to find. Cause it's uh, it's it's like in another. It's in a set with another book called like the Ultimate Lego Encyclopedia. I think so. You have to buy the two together. So I apologize. Uh, uh, not your fault. <laughs> but um, so I did that, and then I've done two cookbooks. Uh, one for a restaurant here in DC called Founding Farmers, which is a farmer-owned farm-to-table restaurant and uh another kids cookbook called it's so good and then last year i also put out a book called freak show without a tent which uh is a travelogue memoir kind of uh part national lampoon vacation part david sedaris part anthony bourdain oh my god uh, everything i love right there in one sentence <laughs> so uh yeah no it's it my family traveled around the world to kind of very far-flung out-of-the-way places as a kid and got into some kind of crazy scrape so that book yeah follows the escapades i your books are like all over the place but like right up my alley which i absolutely love and i love everything you just Good. said in that sentence I was like wow so you're one of those <laughs> again i know writing and like making money in art is such a hard thing and but it's so like it's the food scene in dc that must be uh is that really it must be ever-changing like per whoever comes into office yeah well i have to say when obama came into office it marked a real rise uh in the food scene you know as I'm sure you've read, he and the first lady eat out a lot and support yeah, a lot yeah. of local restaurants, and which is a real change from from the Bushes, who ate mm -hmm. out like just maybe a handful of times and not very enthusiastically. Um, the Obamas have been huge supporters of the restaurant scene, and it kind of kind of timed well in the sense that when they came into office, there's obviously a huge shift in terms of the people that live in D.C. because so, there's so many appointees and so many yeah, people that are associated with each administration. And the Obama administration brought in a, a, a lot of uh, a much younger and obviously much more liberal crowd with them, who were eating out a lot more, who are eating out a lot more. And so, um, yeah, there was just a huge need for for restaurants, and you know, the DC food scene had not been getting a lot of love or the kind of respect it deserved. And there was all these like great hidden gems and great up and coming chefs that just didn't have like the, the audience. And yeah, so it was all just a perfect storm. I mean not this past year, but two years ago, over 120 restaurants opened up in D.C. That's great. It's crazy. And last year, the number, though not that high, was almost as high. And, you know, it's, there's, you know, been a huge flood of, like, very successful homegrown talent here, like, either, you know, just on their own merits or on Top Chef. And yep. so uh, it's, or, you know, or other platforms. And so, um, no, I mean, it's a, it's a great food town. And, uh, it worked out really well. I mean, it was a real risk um, to kind of quit my job and start writing about food in the middle of the recession. Uh, you know, I gave up a job that paid well and had benefits, and my wife was very supportive. She said to me, you know, like, look, I love you, and I support you, and I, I want this dream of yours to work, but you know, 
the first time the rent check bounces, you will go work as a barista if that's what it takes to make yep, the rent. Yep, I used to do that too. <laughs> yeah. So, and I was like, okay, that okay, that's the deal. I bet your happiness increased greatly when you were doing what you love. <laughs> Which, uh, it turns out in life, that's really fucking important, being happy. It is, it it's is. so I important. I can't stress it enough. I mean, if you're unhappy in what you do, it doesn't really matter what rewards come from it because it's never... It's never worth the emotional stress and just no, like the no. lack of fulfillment that you feel as a human being. Um, you know, I still have great respect for television and, you know, I think it would be awesome to do television again in, in some form, but the way I was doing it was not good for me and the work environment sucked. And so I think this was obviously what I'd always wanted to do. And, yeah. you know, it's, but like you said, it's, it's hard. It's 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 not the easiest choice to make, and it's not the easiest life to follow. Um, it has its ups and its downs, and, and you got to be sure that you you have this fortitude to, to handle the downs, and uh, you know, and also kind of the smarts to like monopolize on the highs. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, so, do you get to go out to eat a lot for free? Because that would be like probably the thing I think would be amazing. Yes, uh, I do. Great. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, because like we were saying before, Providence is such a great food scene as well. Like. I wasn't really into food scenes until, like, but now I feel so, like, uh, spoiled by it when I travel anywhere else, like, to my parents' house. Like, when I grew up in Connecticut, I'm like, oh, there's nothing around here. It's like... <laughs> what, no good pizza? Oh, of course there's good pizza, but, like, oh. like I mean, I could, like, walk to, like, a French bistro or a deli or then, so... like, things like that. And then uh, a Korean barbecue just opened up down the street, and we have... Nice. Yeah, it's real nice. good. And they do delivery, so I'm really excited. <laughs> wow. See, we unfortunately live in this part of town where there's, like, boutique delivery services that you can use that charge a premium, but, like, yeah. no oh, restaurant just normally delivers here. Yeah, the delivery part sucks. But yeah, it's nice. I like I like living – and I, I like the food scene, too, because, like, I mean, you know, I've driven cross-country, and it's very easy to go to a couple of towns, and they all look exactly the same. So, like, when you have unique restaurants, you tend to have unique small businesses, and you have culture, and it, it all kind of feeds into each other. Then they bring in artists and unique characters, and, like, it has, like, a real – there's just something nice about it. It's wonderful. You mean it doesn't feel like dull strip mall America? Yeah, yeah. And everyone makes that comparison. They always say, like, the South or Midwest. I'm like, I grew up in Connecticut. I can tell you five towns that look – Walmart, Target, Starbucks, drive-through, Subway, blah 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 blah. It's it's just so sad. It really, really, it really is. No, I grew up in Central New York, and thankfully there's. Oh jeez. So, oh, well, I mean, oh jeez, but you know, I discovered later in life that there's actually like a thriving Italian American food scene up there, and you know, they definitely do some things really well. There's like a great, um, you know, there's like kind of there's great Italian American. There's some great Polish food up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, stuff like that, but you, you really have to seek it out. It's not, you know, a lot of the stuff is yeah. just, like, very bland. I just had Ethiopian food for the first time, and my mind was blown. It was so good. Nice. Yeah. I, I love Ethiopian Yeah. Uh, and well, then I, my friend Nate is really more adventurous than I am, so he and my wife, so they always try to get me to do more. And then I started eating ramen. I went to this place. It's, a, like, a ramen restaurant, and I always thought of ramen as that crappy microwavable stuff. Sure. I had no idea. Wow, it's, man, it's you've incredible. gotten really treated out lately. Well, yeah, you should come, it's funny. You should come to D.C. Uh, D.C. is known as Little Ethiopia. It has the largest Ethiopian population in the world outside of Ethiopia. It's so strange. I just heard that today. That's so strange you said that, too. I was I was listening to someone on a podcast talking about that. I don't know why. 
It was something to do with Bad Brains. I think they made it, it and it about the band Bad Brains, and it turned out like, yeah, it, it, something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I've been to D.C. once, but my wife and I were talking. It's only like eight hours away. You can get a flight cheap. I'm like, I really want to go to D.C. again. Like, do all the, like, the tourist stuff and then see, like, the real D.C. And, like, just, it's For a nice sure. city. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, Let me know if you come and I'll some restaurant recommendations and meet oh, up. Absolutely. For Hell, yeah. I'm always, I'll, I'll have to start reading all your reviews. It'll be great. Um, uh, <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for uh, doing this. This has been a, a blast. Uh, where can people find you on the old internets? So people can find me on Twitter at Nevin Martell, which is just N-E-V-I-N-M-A-R-T-E-L-L. And my website's nevinmartell.com. And, uh, you know, I'm socially, I'm, you know, very active on social media. I'm on Facebook. Look me up. Follow me. Find my website. You know, I'd love to hear from people. Buy his books. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. This is just so great because I... You're Thank the you, second Chris. author of book. I actually read their book and then got to have him come on. Um, Mike Sachs, who wrote Poking a Dead Frog. It's like uh, conversations with today's top comedy writers. It's a really great book. Very I think cool. you can kind of tell I have definitely that we, that kind of taste in like reading stuff. But it's cool. I can tell. I yeah, can tell. Because I read your book and then the Jim Henson biography. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it was here's amazing. A crazy, here's a crazy Jim Henson anecdote for you. So my father... Uh, when I was growing up, owned a restaurant on the Upper East Side of Manhattan called Martell's, 80, corner of 83rd and 3rd. A lot of famous people came in. Uh, a couple of the Beatles came in. Wow. The guy, uh, the guy who played uh, Kojak came in a fair amount. Uh, there were a fair amount of authors and, and writers at the time who came in and out. So my mom one day was down um, having you know a meal, and I was with her. I was just a little kid, like maybe one or two years old. And um, I was in like a sling, and... Uh, there was like a guy sitting a couple tables over from us and, uh, you know, I was making silly faces apparently and, and he started like, you know, waving and making silly faces back at me and I was cracking up and, and laughing and everything. And, you know, my mom appreciated the fact that, you know, this guy is like being nice to her baby. And yeah. anyway, he, uh, he waves goodbye, says goodbye to both of us and leaves. And, and uh, the waiter comes over to my mom and goes, you know, that was Jim Henson, right? Oh my God. You've met Jim Henson. <laughs> I, I, I met Jim Henson in, in the most fleeting of ways, but but yeah. I, I feel like he touched me. <laughs> well, it's funny because the Muppets all really started in D.C. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Cable Access, I believe, or something. It was all, it was all down in D.C., so I, I was wondering. But the, I, Watterson and Henson, two, two, like, weird mythical idols that just, I don't know, there's something about those dudes that, like, I don't know, I just love them. I love all their work. It's been wonderful. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Uh, yeah, obviously, because the book. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, man. This is so wonderful. Thanks, Chris. It was great talking to you. I appreciate it.